If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show and happy Friday. Oh, do I have a Friday gift for you. Malcolm Gladwell. I love his books and I love him. And so will you when you listen to this interview. He's the author of many hugely successful, influential books, at least five of which um, I have been New York Times bestsellers, Outliers, The Tipping Point, Blink, Talking to Strangers, all of which you should read. They're easy, quick reads that will really enrich you. They'll leave you feeling enriched. He also hosts a great podcast called Revisionist History, where he goes back and looks at interesting stories or people and takes a sort of a fresh look at them. Um, and he co-founded a podcast company called Pushkin, which is doing really well. He's also been writing for The New Yorker since 1996. He once was a Washington Post journalist, which he'll talk about a reporter. Uh, and we get into everything. He did great work recently, sort of blowing the lid off of U.S. News and World Report and how we rely on them for the college rankings and what BS it is. He has also blown the lid off the Little Mermaid. And it's probably the best part and maybe most contentious of our interview where he actually questions my parenting skills. And we will get into that. Um, we get into the importance of being disagreeable in today's day and age, the importance of forgiveness um, and whether his being a contrarian, which is, that's my word. We'll see whether he agrees with it, uh, is a good thing or a bad thing. It's so chock full of goodness, this interview. You're going to love it. He's coming up one minute away. Malcolm Gladwell, thank you so much for doing this. Not at all. I'm happy to be on your show. I'm excited for many reasons. I'm your fan. I've read your books. I've proselytize a lot of your messages. I feel like I'm living uh, some of the core theses espoused therein. And also because I am married to a writer. Um, ah. And so that's kind of where I want to kick it off. He, he's, he's been writing fiction. His latest work is nonfiction. So he's moving more uh -huh. into the Malcolm Gladwell world. But um, what is your process? You know, like I watch my husband write. He writes long form on legal pads. Then he types oh, wow. in the book, like into his laptop himself, which is his editing process. You know, he edits while he does yeah. that. Um, he's in a book club with some great, great authors who you would know very well. Nelson DeMille and um, oh, gosh, oh, just yeah. a bunch of like, uh, yeah, um, uh, Amor Tolls. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the authors in there, the guy who, gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. He writes the Jack Reacher series. Um, oh, my God. Lee, Lee, Child. Lee Child. Yeah. So I'm Lee obsessed Child's with Lee Child. I've read every single Lee Child book. No, he's amazing. So, but he writes stream of consciousness, chain smoking cigarettes, 
and then just hands it in. He doesn't edit. He like so. I'm always fascinated when I meet successful authors about what their process is. Oh, well, um, you know, the actual writing doesn't take very long. What takes a long time is the thinking and the arranging and the. Um, so I'm actually, and I was an old newspaper guy. So I spent my first ten years at the Washington Post, and um, being a newspaper person. Um, permanently cures you of any kind of uh, preciousness about the writing process. You, <laughs> someone, so at the age of 23, I'm at the Washington Post, and basically they put a gun to your head and they say, okay, this is the story you have to write. It's now 11 a.m. We need it by four. Or, yeah. you know, so I was, they used to call me at the Washington Post Picasso because I was, you know, when I got there, I was like, you know, a great, you know, I, I thought deep thoughts and took my time and created beautiful <laughs> paintings. That was, that was all gone after no. about two months. So I don't have any, I can, you know, I can, I write really quickly and without any kind of muss and fuss, but I do spend, I'm a runner and I will, you know, on my long runs, I will spend time thinking through everything I'm doing. And I mm. sort of arrange it all in my head uh, before I sit down um, uh, at the computer, I do not write on yellow legal pads and have yeah, not okay. done so since the 1990s. <laughs> That's just Doug's thing. <laughs> and you'd think Doug was, you know, 70 years old. He's not. He's 49. <laughs> he just he's younger refuses than me. to he's advance. Like, does, does he use a Blackberry? I mean, how many different ways is he, <laughs> is he old school? Malcolm, he would be. If I hadn't insisted that he'd upgrade to the iPhone, I think he still would be on the, on the Blackberry. It works for him. Uh, but I, I know what you mean. You can't have any of your little darlings, right? Was it Hemingway who said that you, it's so yes, hard to get rid of your, yes, little, your you little darlings? Yes, you pretty quickly in the... Yeah, uh, but I, that was the best, the best thing that ever happened to me as a writer was spending 10 years at the Washington Post. I learned yeah. everything. And I got, by the way, their patience with me in the, I arrived there not knowing how to do a single thing related to journalism. God knows why they hired me. I, I did not know to this day why I was hired. It's like a mystery. No one ever answered this question. I didn't know what I was doing. And they sat with me and worked with me. And um, I finally kind of put it together. I can relate to that, though. I'll tell you, my first job in television, I had zero TV experience. I had just I was still practicing law and just mm -hmm. an unhappy lawyer trying to try my hand at something else. And uh, there was a breaking news story and it was a slow day. So they didn't adequately staff the newsroom. And that's why they chose me <laughs> to go oh, really? out and cover it. So I went. It was a, it was it was actually um, a school shooting. Nobody was hurt. It was an attempted. Yeah. And uh, so I get on scene and, and they say, OK, you know, you're going to be live at the top of the six. We need a donut. Um, we'll see you, you know, five minutes. I'm like, I got it. And of course, I look at my team I'm like, what the hell is a donut? What is it? <laughs> so, Wait, what is a donut? It means you're live in the intro to the piece. Then you go on tape and then you're live uh, out of the piece. Uh, so I don't know uh, if that's really a donut. So it should be more like a sandwich. You know, <laughs> I don't know. So really even the term they use to describe it is not the right term. So that's even more Correct. baffling. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but you were a you were a lawyer. Now I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna um uh quibble a little bit. So you were not unprepared. Uh being trained as a lawyer is actually a really good preparation for being a non-air journalist, right? Yeah. You're trained to true. think on your feet, to deal with to process a lot of information pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I was not a lawyer when I started the question. I didn't know anything. What <laughs> have was, you been doing? I had been working uh, 
Well, you know, I, my first job was with uh, a magazine called The American Spectator, a oh, yeah, conservative sure. magazine out of Indiana. Still around. I like them. Still around. And I would write these. I was an editor there, but I was like, I started there when I was 20 and I made $9,500 a year. And Sweet. I would write these like book reviews for them from time to time, which would take me like eight months. So it's like, I was this, that's all I did. And then I, I moved to, I, I got fired from that job, moved to Washington, DC, worked at a think tank for a while. And I continued to freelance, but I wasn't, it was the opposite of newspaper writing. You know, it was this kind of, I would toil away on these things for months and months and months. So I didn't know what, how to do the thing that I was being asked to do at a newspaper, which was five hours. I knew five months. That's what I knew. Mm-hmm. In the law, we used to say, if I had a longer time, I would have written a shorter brief. And that's yes. that's <laughs> yes. the frustration of newspaper writing and television writing, too, because there, yeah. there are two areas in which you're expected to write tight. You know, you don't have a lot of time. You don't have a lot of space. And um, and yet it takes a while to get really clear, concise, tight writing. It takes practice, really. So coming into it green, it must have been frustrating. I know it was for me. Yeah, yeah. No, I survived. They they did not fire me, uh, contrary to my expectations. And so I I survived I survived to write another day. And you you got your ten thousand hours in, right? As as a journalist, as a writer. Well, you know, I I was ten thousand hours equates to ten years of kind of and that's I was at the Washington Post for exactly ten years. And I I left when I left, I I was like, I think I learned everything that I need to learn from this place. But it took mm-hmm. 10 years to learn what I needed to learn. I understand that. I actually felt one of the reasons I left Fox was I felt like I had learned everything I was going to learn. And I had, there was no more, there was not one more muscle to grow. You know, I just felt yeah. like there's no more growth available to to me here. Um, it was one of the many reasons, but that was one of my concerns. I wanted to go someplace where I could grow and grow. I did at NBC for all of my uh, complaints about how my relationship there ended. I, I definitely grew as a journalist and still use some yeah. of those skills. Um I, one of the things I've, oh, by the way, the 10,000 hours thing is a reference to you. People may not know that comes from you. That's from Outliers, right? And right. Was it Outliers? I get them confused. It was Outliers where I popped. Yeah. yeah that was a notion that had been um, floating around. No, it wasn't. It was years. yours. You no, are the one who made it, it famous. I, I made it famous, but I, you know, I didn't invent it. I, it's very no. clear. I have to be very clear that I, yes, I was a, a popular, I'm a popularizer, Megan. That's my, yeah. that's my job. Yeah. Well, I, it was fascinating because I do think, and I'll get to this with you in a, a little bit, but I think you've changed the world. I really think you calling attention to some of these things, you've changed certainly my own experience in, in this world and, and schools. And I don't know, just people pay attention to what you write and then they start doing things differently. And that's power. You have real power. Um, but here's where I want to start. I, I know you were born in England. You were raised in Canada. Uh-huh. And unlike mo- most Canadians, I feel like you are a contrarian by nature. But uh, you probably disagree. <laughs> no, I am. I'm totally contrarian by nature. In fact, I remember uh, once in uh, grade school when we were taught that the world was round, and I derailed the entire um, lesson that day. This is like third grade, and I was like, "Well, how do we know? How do we know it's round?" I hadn't sort of understood the thing that you can watch the Earth from space. You know, I was like, "How do you know? It's, how do you know there's not like a little, a little like bump in the Earth or in Africa somewhere?" And I just would not accept the teacher's <laughs> explanation. The world was round, so yeah, it goes back a long way. I am a little, and as you're right, it's not a Canadians are not by nature um, disputatious, and no. we are. But I'm not a Canadian now. 
I will say I'm a Canadian, but I, you know, I was, I, I am an immigrant to Canada. So I have, mm-hmm. um, I came from, from England when I was six. So I have, I have so many different like little, um, cultural tendencies floating around inside of me that I feel like I, I, there's a good reason why I'm not the most perfect uh, Canadian. (laughs) So I I wonder if being a contrarian has made your life better or worse, more difficult or just more exciting and successful? Uh, Well, it's very useful. I mean, journalists should be contrarians in a sense that our our job is to um, is to be um, the kind of first line of skepticism, particularly yes. to those who are in power. So, um, in that sense, it served me um, very well. And the other thing that being a contrarian does is that it forces you uh, to to keep updating your own beliefs. Right? You the, the really good contrarian is not just a contrarian about what others say, but is also a contrarian about um, what he or she beliefs mm-hmm. right so that's those are two very useful things does it make my life easier well who knows um does it make me happier uh, i have no idea does it but does it suit my professional life yes very much mm-hmm. yeah i think you're absolutely right i love what you said about journalists needing to be skeptical and i do feel like it's being forgotten you know the democratic the more left-leaning press, very, very skeptical of Trump um, and Fox and the conservative media, the opposite. And that now with Biden, mm-hmm. Fox is full of skepticism and the, the left-leaning press, the opposite. But it should be universal. You know, we should come in cranky <laughs> and, yes. and not ready yeah. to believe anybody, right? It's like, check it out. If your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> Wait a minute. That not going that far. I'm not skeptical <laughs> of my mother saying she loves me. I just talked to her last night and she, she, I, I not, it never even occurred to me to question what Joyce Glavel says. about. Well, I hate <laughs> to tell you, I talked to her too, and you might want to you know, try poking some holes in that. <laughs> um, you also said at, um, you, you go to Carlos Watson's sort of, you know, talk fest that he has every year, Aussie fest. And I love Carlos Watson. He's such a great guy. But you said to him that you really think yeah. people should be more disagreeable. And I, uh, my note in my outline reads, yay, <laughs> because I feel like, yes, I'm nailing it. Right? I'm nailing it. But I know what well, you mean. I, I think I know what you mean, but I want you to define it. Well, disagreeable. So there's two de- two meanings of that term. One is the colloquial meaning, which is obnoxious. And that's not what I mean. I don't think people should be obnoxious. I think the opposite. But disagreeable in this, as it's defined by psychologists, is a disagreeable someone is a person is someone who does not require the approval of others in order to pursue what they intend to pursue, right? And I think that I don't want everyone to be that way, but I think that we underestimate how important that trait is, particularly in people who are trying to make our world better or pursue some new and innovative idea. Um, if you are someone who can't move a muscle unless the world aligns behind you and pats you on the back, there's a limit to what you can accomplish. And um, so I've I've sort of made a kind of, I, in my book, which book was it? There's been so many of them. Once I had, oh, I think it was my book, David and Goliath. I had a whole chapter on this um, doctor called Emil Freireich, who was the one who really, in, he's the guy who cures childhood leukemia and who really 
doesn't invent it, but he's the one who makes it possible for medicine to modern medicine to really start to pursue um, a combination chemotherapy. Basically, modern chemotherapy comes from this guy, Emil Freireich. And at the time he proposes this way of using drugs in combination to treat cancer, everyone, with the exception of his research partner, thinks he is not just wrong, but a monster. And there's a period of years where people won't work with him, people denounce him, where people heckle him at research meetings, where he is ostracized by his peers, and he persists and persists and persists. And today, there are there are people listening to this podcast who are alive because of Emil Freireich. I mean, wow. he is this extraordinary figure. And the reason, so I, I met with him on two occasions. He died just recently, actually, um, well into his 90s, trying to figure out how is it that someone as a young professional was able to persist with an idea when everyone in the world thought he was a monster? And the answer is that he was disagreeable. He is this big bear of a guy who could not, for the you know, didn't give a, I'm not going to swear on your a podcast. Hoot. A hoot. Oh, you can, but yeah, I got you. <laughs> Did not give a hoot what anyone thought about him. He was that kind of guy. He was... And he was unpleasant and he had a anger problem and he was a bully. And he was, the first time I met him, I was like, I can't stand this guy. I don't <laughs> want to hang out with him. I, I, I was like, I got to get out of here. This guy's a monster. And then I realized, I thought about it and I realized, oh, that's exactly why he was able to follow through on these ideas and end up saving the lives of, I mean, the number of lives this man saved in the end we're in the we're in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands, wow. and it's because he was this difficult. He didn't he didn't give two hoots about what anyone thought of him, right? Mm -hmm. And I, it made me realize, you know, that um, our first of all, our initial my initial reaction to him was wrong. I thought he was a jerk, and then I realized, oh no, that's the most important part of him. I need to get mm -hmm. over my little my little kind of precious response to his difficult personality because his difficult personality is why he is so important to the world, right? The fact that I was offended by him did not matter. It's just my, and understanding that your own response in that situation is not just irrelevant, but it's, it is, and beside the point, um, it's counterproductive, right? The easiest thing to do for me as a journalist would have been to write a chapter of my book about what a just a complete a-hole this guy is. That right. would have been the easiest thing, right? And that would have been, that would have completely missed the point of what made yeah. this man great. You know, I'm I confess to you, I'm thinking, I know that you're not a Donald Trump fan, but I am thinking about him as you talk like that, because he he def his strange personality and his approach to media and communication yeah, and yeah. problems definitely worked to his advantage in getting some of his initiatives through and and just the way he governed i mean the one example i'm thinking about is when he took out Soleimani, right, the Iranian general, and there was pushback, mm -hmm. don't do it, and we're going to have a war with Iran, and, and he did it anyway. And he's just so impulsive and a risk taker and really doesn't care if the, if the, if the tide of opinion is going against him. He kind of goes on instinct. 
And we'll see. I mean, but it so far that's worked out okay. We didn't go into a war with Iran. We got rid of a guy yeah. who killed a lot of Americans or was responsible for it. Anyway, I love him or hate him. I see yeah. some useful, parallels. Yeah, it's a useful trait in those who are trying to accomplish something difficult. I think that's the fairest way to say it. Now, so, and when we confront people like that, uh, what I'm saying is that our focus should be on the merits of their idea, not the difficulties of their personality. Mm-hmm. And I think and we yet get- we're going another way, right? We, I mean, today's society is much more, you, you need to be liked. Um, you know, certain behaviors are not allowed. Certain words are not allowed. So, you know, you, I think now more than ever, it just feels like we are too solicitous of other people's ap- approval. We're, we're getting more risk averse because we live yeah. in cancel culture and so on. Yeah. Well, it becomes, do you want to, can I tell you my, my rule for dealing with criticism, yeah. which is, uh, this is, you know, this is incredibly, um, I love these little rules of thumb. People, I collect little rules of thumb. People give me really good ones. My, my friend Bruce once gave me a great one about jealousy. He said, the way to deal with jealousy is you can never be jealous of a, um, a single characteristic of someone else's life. If you want to be jealous of them, you have to, you have to be jealous of their entire life. So you can't just say, oh, I dislike him because he's richer than I am. You have to say, okay, I do you dislike him? Would you would you rather have his life than yours? Every single mm-hmm. part of it? Right? That's good. Anyway. That is useful. It's a good one. Here's what I do for criticism, which is that um, if you sell 10 books, let's assume for the sake of argument that 90% of the people who read your books, or listen to your television show like you, and 10% don't. That would be a, that's a really, really, really good ratio, right? You and I can mm. both agree that's amazing if that yes. was true. Let's stipulate that. If 10 people listen to your show or watch your show or read your book, that means that you have nine fans and one detractor. That will seem like you're doing great, Right. Those nine fans are going to like say, hey, Megan, love you. You're never going to hear from the one detractor. If a million people read your book, you have 900,000 fans and 100,000 detractors, right? right. right? So 100,000, that's like the size of a medium-sized city who hate you. You're going to hear from them all the time. That's like, and you have to remember, you have to think the number of your critics is simply a, 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 a constant, uh, uh, um, it is a function of the number of your size of your audience. The more people who like you, the more people who will also hate you, right? Because of this rule. So like, if you if you go on your Twitter mentions and just read an avalanche of people saying all kinds of nasty things, just oh keep in mind that that's because there's a whole massive, much larger universe of people out there who like you. Right means mm-hmm. your audience is big. It's good. I and like that. I'm going to hold this. Hold on to this hold, tonight and remember, every night. <laughs> remember that rule. And also the people who, you know, the you're much more. You know this. The, you're much more likely to speak up if you dislike something. You don't hear mm-hmm. from your fans. Mm-hmm. Right. They're I think it's one silent. of those situations. You know how some of the corporations will say for everybody who writes a letter or picks up the phone and calls, either with a compliment or a complaint, they they assume they represent a much larger group, right? Because it takes a lot yeah. to pick up the phone and call a company about a product, good or bad. 
And I, I feel that too. If somebody actually picks up the phone to call me and say, MK, I really appreciate what you did on this. It, it's very meaningful to me, even if it's a friend, because my friends, they don't call me up and say, hey, great segment or great show. So if they yeah. do, it means way more to me than, than a Twitter attack or something like that. And then I always know uh, that person represents a lot, a lot of others who are out there feeling the same, who just they don't know how to reach me or, you know, I try, I try to remember that because I'm in media, which is definitely mm-hmm. more left than I am. And Twitter is more left than I am. So that's not really the, the healthiest, the, mo- well, the most emotionally yeah. healthy place for me. But I still think it's important to engage with people who are not ideologically aligned with me. Yeah. You know, I, I want to do that, but it's not always the most pleasant experience. Twitter is not. I, I would amend your statement about Twitter. Um, it's not full of people who are to the left of you. It's full of people who are a lot more obnoxious. <laughs> it's like, it's just as Twitter just is sort of a cesspool of like a lot of nasty yes. people saying nasty things. I, you know, I, it's why I try to limit myself on Twitter to like, um, always say something positive, retweet really great cat videos whenever possible. <laughs> Those, that's what's useful about Twitter. I get more, you know, like funny, there's like, the, the thing, the thing I retweeted yesterday to a friend of mine, not retweeted, I sent to a friend of mine, was, have you ever seen this? Do you remember Mary Carrillo who used to, I think she still does, yes. does tennis commentary. Badminton. Have you seen, have you seen the Mary Carrillo yes. badminton thing? Oh it's my amazing. God. It's the greatest thing ever. I've played a lot of badminton with my kids. By the seventh shot, this thing's up in the tree, okay? So then what does your kid do? She says, mommy, I'll get it down. Throws a racket up in the tree. Now your racket's up in the tree. She says, don't worry, I'll get that down. So now your kid goes into the garage and goes and gets the red rubber ball, which should come as standard equipment in any kind of backyard badminton set. Throws that in, that immediately gets impaled. So she goes to get something else to get, the be- to, to get one of these things down, okay? Now there are kids from all over the neighborhood that have come into your backyard and they're emptying out your garage, throwing stuff at your tree. Somehow, mothers from all over the neighborhood hear that badminton is being played at Mary's house. They're dropping off their kids. They know it's an all-day affair. They know it's going to involve 17 other sports. They're dropping off their kids. They're leaving skid marks, okay? Sharing the joy of the Mary Carrillo badminton rant is exactly why Twitter was invented. And as long what as it we should remember be for. that, it's what it should be for. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. Did you did you see it for the first time yesterday? Yeah. Yes, I had never seen it before. Uh, somebody on one of my favorite news websites, Mediaite, posted it, and I, I watched yeah, the whole thing. Like, I'm like, this is the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. So true. As a mother, now, I can totally relate to all of this. No, wait. Now, here's my question to you as a TV person. That wasn't extemporaneous. No, was it? I don't think so. No, no way. No way. She it was, wrote it. It was, I think it so, was, yeah. <laughs> at, at a minimum, bullets, you know, that she followed. Because it was too good. It was too long. <laughs> and I, she is brilliant, so you never know. She is brilliant. But I don't, I almost like it better if it was prepared. Because I like the fact, I was thinking about this. I was like, first of all, there's a slight chance she did it off the top of her head. But I don't think she did. But I like it. I like it more because I like that she sat down and said, "Okay, I am going to finally tell the world." (laughs) (laughs) But it's like two a.m. in the morning. Like you know, it was like no, you know, she's like, "Okay, I got, I got, I got an hour of dead space. I'm, (laughs) I'm going to finally put pen to paper and describe my problem (laughs) with backyard badminton." Up next, we'll get into why you should be disagreeable right after this. 
So let's talk about um, the many unpopular positions you have had as a contrarian and someone who likes to be disagreeable, yeah. both of yeah. which I am. So I relate to you. I, I really yeah. do. Yeah. I think I would definitely say you're more <laughs> beloved universally than yours truly, but I'm more political yeah, than you same. are in this. So it comes with the territory. But yes, yes. Um, yes. You've defended clear. people like you don't do politics. I know. And I like yeah. that. I think that yeah. that must be wonderful. And that's why you're such a successful author, right? Because it's like, Everybody would buy a Malcolm Gladwell book. You don't have to be no. a Republican. You don't have to be a Democrat. So it's smart. Okay, you got, you got in trouble for defending Joe Paterno of Penn State. I, I read the I? whole thing. I understand your point on him. Well, just push back. I'm going to quibble with you. Okay. Did I get in trouble? I don't think I got in trouble. You just on got criticized. Yeah. Yeah, but I, uh, but just to my point, I got criticized because lots of people read that book. And, but oh, but how did the, of the people who read that chapter and thought about it, what percent, uh, not, I mean, maybe agree with me is too strong, came away with a deeper understanding of that case, I think mm -hmm. the overwhelming majority. So most of the people I heard from about that chapter were like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. You know, now that you've laid out how difficult that case was and simply asked the question, now remind me again what Joe Paterno did wrong? like. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. He informed his superiors the minute he was somebody came to him with an allegation. I to this day I'm just, just, to, just let by... me just remind the viewers what we're talking about or the listeners, just in case they don't remember mm -hmm. this. It was Paterno was the head of the football team there, and Jerry Sandusky, who'd been his assistant coach for many many years, was accused of molesting was of being a serial molester, but the um. The allegation was made that it was brought to his attention by by another 20 year old. I don't know if he, I can't remember what whether that guy, Mike McQuarrie, was a coach or what he was, but he brought it to Paterno's attention that he had heard uh, Sandusky in a locker room and um, that he thought it was something like fondly. I, it, it, the, the testimony yeah. was <clears throat> definitely problematic. Seen something uh, that, yeah, seen something that yeah. didn't seem right. It wasn't as Paterno. explicit as the prosecution later alleged in court. And that upset McQuarrie because yeah. basically the prosecutor said McQuarrie went in the locker room and saw saw Sandusky in the process of a rape uh, with a young child. And McQuarrie came out later saying, what are you what are you saying? That's not that's not it's never been what I've said that I saw. I heard yeah. sounds that sounded sexual. I got disturbed and I left. Anyway, your point was Paterno had enough reason to sort of question it that he did bring it to his superiors but his critics his critics say he should have gone to the cops right that's where that's where the critics i think would come in well the critics uh that's not what the you know there's a penn, penn state like many institutions has a kind of manual a rule book i don't know what the right phrase is that that lays out the procedures that employees officials of the school are supposed to follow in the face of those kinds of allegations and he was supposed to inform the athletic director, his boss, um, when in the in in when confronted with that kind of information, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. You know, I, Megan, I don't. You do not want to get me going up Penn State because no. they the way they have hounded the president. This is makes me even angrier. He's Graham Spanier. Was it Graham Spanier? Who's now being yeah. sent to prison? I mean, I just I uh, I don't. I, go down this road. Okay. But just I like have something the, better I want to talk to you about, but I'll okay, let you make okay, your point. Okay. But, but I want to make one small point, which is yeah. the point of that book, Talking to Strangers, my last, my second last book, where I discussed that case in detail. And, and for those who want to know more about this case, I would recommend they read the chapter of that. 
Because yeah. one of the things I discovered in writing the chapter on the Penn State case is that it, it became very clear to me that the majority of journalists who wrote about the Penn State case knew nothing about the Penn State case. They had not read the trial transcript. I sat down and read all however many thousand pages of it. And you realize when you do that, and that that the, the kind of popular conversation about the case had nothing in common with the actual facts of the case because mm, nobody was doing their the homework. And don't even get me started on this. It's your job as yeah. a journalist to do your homework. That is why you are paid what you're paid. And that's why you're given the privileged position you are given in society to have a platform, right? And if you're going to sound off about a case and you haven't done your homework, that's malpractice. Now, yeah. I don't, I'm not asking people to agree with me in my interpretation of that case. I don't care whether you agree with me or not. Just do your homework. But there's a don't set of facts. That, know know yeah. the testimony. Know what's been know alleged and what hasn't been alleged. Yeah, argue, argue with my interpretation of it based on your knowledge, your, on an equal knowledge of the case. Um, yes. Anyway, when people don't do that and they think they can, there's some kind of shortcut to writing about complicated, case, complicated cases, it drives me insane. No, I agree with you. I agree with you because I, I I saw it. I mean, more recently than that, we saw it in the case of Brett Kavanaugh and the allegations getting thrown around about him. And it was like, have you done anything? I mean, what have you done to assure yourself that you understand the facts even being alleged and half of them never even should have made air? You know, it was they weren't journalistically sound for reporting, as we saw. I will say um, NBC did an interview with the one woman, Julie Swetnick, and there was a debate internally about whether we should air it because she just fell apart on national television. I mean, it was just Kate Snow demolish this woman just by asking questions. And in the end, I think it was the right call to put it on the air because then the public got to see for themselves that there was no credibility yeah. in any of this. But yet you do have to, you got to go beyond the lawyer. In that case, it was Michael Avenatti uh, and what they're saying, right? As a journalist, you have to have, take your skeptical mind, look at mm -hmm. the evidence for yourself. And then you're right. We disagree on interpretations, but the facts are, are right there. Okay. So, but that's what brings me, the, um, this is all a long wind up to Jeffrey Tubin. <laughs> who we have to discuss. I totally disagree yeah. with you on him. I know you, you said something like, is, what, is he like, he's got, he's gotten canceled for, you know, following Catholic doctrine or the, the Catholic doctrines, doctrines being followed against joke. him. That's a joke. I know, I know, I know. But you were, you, I think still work at the New Yorker, but you have, you've been there since 1996. And he's, he was mm -hmm. at the New Yorker, got fired mm -hmm. for, you know, now mm -hmm. we all know, you know, the masturbating on a Zoom call. Um, and I let me let me ask you why you don't think he should have been canned, because I've definitely got th strong thoughts on this one. Well, uh, I have many reasons. I'll give you the kind of high level reason why I felt compelled to say what I said to the New York Times. Um, <clears throat> I am an explanations junkie. Um, I and it's gotten worse as I've gotten older. Um, mm -hmm. If someone wants to do something, even something I disagree with, or ask me to do something, even something I don't want to do, I am perfectly happy to entertain that particular request. But I require an explanation, right? You got to tell me why. You can't just say, oh, I want to do X, or you should do X. No, tell me why. So mm -hmm. my problem with Condé Nast was you... Jeff Tubin is an employee of Condé Nast. Um, if you would like to fire him for whatever reason, that's your prerogative, right? He's your employee. I, I, I you know, it's not, not none of my business what you want to do with one of your employees. But you got to give a reason. Some guys 
worked for you, done a high level quality work for however many, 25 years, and you want to turn around one day because there's a report in the news media about him and say, you're out. Tell me why. Okay. They did not say why. And that really, really bothered me. And I, I am now, you know, uh, I have started this company with my best friend a couple of years ago, uh, Jacob Weisberg and Pushkin Audio. We now have all kinds yeah. of people working here. And um, <clears throat> I think it is exceedingly important that people in positions of leadership um, in organizations abide by this principle. I wanted to make it clear to anyone who works with me that if there is ever an issue about whether you should continue to be employed at our company, and if we decide to let you go, we will tell you why, right? We will make it absolutely clear and transparent. And if we cannot tell you why, we should not be firing you, right? If you can't articulate why and tell the world why, you have no business introducing, uh, you have no business like uh, 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 getting rid of somebody, right? Just say why. They couldn't say why, right? Well, but we do why. You ever hear the saying, no, picture no, speaks a thousand words? No, 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 no. <laughs> Just Megan, somebody Megan. hit play, you hit can't... rewind. No, no, Megan, Megan, Megan. I know, okay, you can say we knew why well. No, wait a minute. That's not true. They, we have, I mean, you, you and I can sit here and come up with explanations for why they might've been upset, but it is incumbent on them to spell it out, right? Don't leave. I don't, don't think leave so. The world. I think it was plain as the nose on your face, or no, you could go no. further south if you really want to take it into tube and land. <laughs> I and also I, you know, I also think that whether an act is in, I happen to, and I know this. I read this really interesting piece on this, and I realize we're getting into de very deep and interesting ethical territory. But I am one of those people who believes that there is a clear ethical difference between an intentional and an unintentional act, harmful act, um, and I am inclined to be far well, more forgiving. Of, and I, you know, this, what he did was completely unintentional. And that makes a big difference. Maybe. Um, and, and also, I've, I've heard it posited that it, it may have been intentional because it was so reckless to the point where um, it's possible he enjoyed that, that it's possible. I realize he protests otherwise, but that yeah. he was actually looking well, to be an exhibitionist. Megan, that would have been a really good thing for Condé Nast to have investigated and informed us. Right. Yeah. Well, that's true. But they, I don't right? think they cared about motive. I think you're right. But I think even if they didn't think it was intentional, we could all see how reckless it was. It, we could see yeah, how it reckless was, it, it was. was you, yeah. you you masturbate, you know, half your your colleagues have seen your penis because you masturbated in the middle of a work Zoom call in the middle of the day while you're rehearsing for the election coverage, something that's serious with gravitas, which you are supposed to be, too, in his role in particular. He needs to have the respect of the newsroom, gravitas, mm -hmm. a sense of, I don't know, just dignity. And it was lost in that moment because he took an incredibly reckless risk. And the downside of that risk materialized, which I'm sure caused some of his colleagues trauma that, you know, you don't need an internal investigation to see the, the obvious revulsion of the women who had to look at that while they're just trying to talk about mm -hmm. what Biden wins, what if Trump wins. You don't need an investigation for everything. Some things are just obvious. And so I just think. But you do need that an plus his not an investigation. Well, I'll, just, I'll just make one other point, then I'll give you the oh. more. But that plus his yeah. history, because he had, he had a history. He has a history um, with women that was problematic. I think for them it was the it was the last straw. And I mean, CNN went a different way, right? They suspended him and then brought him back. But brought him back. What, what yeah. do you make of that? Well, there's a difference between investigation and explanation. So I'm not 
I don't think it was necessary um, uh, to do an investigation, although they did, by the way, but of course didn't inform us what the investigation um, uh, came up with. I'm asking for explanations. And I think it's very useful. You know, this is not going to be the first time this uh, kind of issue will come up right? These are ongoing issues in this, particularly as we're in a period where we're navigating this weird thing about working from home and working from the office. In a world where we all go into the office every day, that meeting pre-pandemic, that meeting would have taken place in the New Yorker offices and none of this happens. So we're in this gray area where people are at home, where they're stressed out, where God knows what's happening. And they're working on a on a uh, an unfamiliar technology, which introduces all kinds of complications in communication that didn't exist before, whatever. This and the world going forward is going to be a little different than the world that was pre-pandemic. It would be very useful for us to figure out a set of ground rules for this new working environment. How do I've we do one. that? Don't jerk off in the middle of a work. Call. Okay. Okay, Muting but... the camera is not an excuse. There's not an exception to this rule. Okay, but it would be very useful. Very useful. I, I'm not. I'm not. Remember, I'm not necessarily. Um, uh, I'm not quarreling with the outcome here. I'm quarreling with the process. Now, I happen to believe he should not have been uh, fired, but that's a separate issue. We're not debating this at the moment. We're talking about the most prestigious magazine in the world. Surely. They can give us an articulate, thoughtful explanation no. of what exactly. <laughs> okay, wait. Let's move on. Um, okay. he's still got his job on CNN, so it's not like he's unemployed, uh, but no, yeah. no longer with with the New Yorker. Okay, so let's talk about cancel culture and the crackdown of free speech in our in our society right now. Because I know you signed the the Harper's letter that um, your friend and mine, Thomas Chatterton Williams, put together. Love him. He's been on the program, and I know you've spoken out about. I mean, the letter itself speaks about how we're we're seeing um, we're seeing norms of open debate and toleration weakened right now. And in, mm-hmm. instead, we're going toward ideological conformity, de- demanding ideological conformity. And to me, it, it's deeply disturbing. I it, I've devoted my professional life over the past year, at least since this whole thing began to trying to fight back against that. And the more you tell me I can't say something. The more I want to say it, it's just the way I'm I'm built. So I was mm-hmm. cheering the letter. I loved the letter. But why did you think? Why did you think it was important? Uh, well, to be perfectly honest, I didn't spend a lot of time at the time I signed the letter thinking about the issue. It just struck me. The letter struck me as being very kind of um, uncontroversial, and <laughs> um, I mean, I, didn't, I I I was very puzzled by the kind of um, subsequent, although was it that bit much? I'm trying to think. Like I'm trying to think Not back really. to that moment. That it, 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 it was just like a, you know, I thought it was a, a very a straightforward, commonsensical statement of, um, of how uh, free speech is important. Subsequently, of course, you know, this whole issue has gotten more and more um, uh, uh, heated. Um, yeah. I will say, can I indulge in a little bit of self promotion here? Please. Okay. Go for it. Um, one of the episodes of my podcast this season is essentially an allegory about this. And it's, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you a little preview of it, which is a good, I think, a good way to explain where my thinking has landed on this. Um, 
So I did an episode, I think it's the ninth episode this season. Uh, um, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. It's the one that just aired. Uh, it's, um, it's called, it's about a woman named Helen Levitt. It aired uh, last week oh, yeah. uh, before. Yeah. Um, and it's about a woman who communist. was, yeah, she was a, a Hollywood communist who was blacklisted during the McCarthy years. And she and her husband, who were both writers in Hollywood, um, lost their jobs for, um, like many others who were on the Hollywood blacklist and um, struggled for, um, you know, many, many years and then finally kind of crawled their way back into Hollywood. And she had given this extraordinary interview um, before she died. She died in, you know, many years ago now, but um, a long interview. And I basically did a whole episode where I played you this interview she had given about her life. And I asked you to judge her. And it's a super interesting topic because I am, I, when I was a kid, I was the most hardcore anti-communist known to man. So here is a woman talking about how she was a Stalinist in the 50s. Now, it's one thing to be a communist in the 30s, but to be a communist into the mid 50s, not just a communist, a Stalinist, someone who is openly standing up and apologizing for Joseph Stalin, who by that point was revealed to the world as one of the truly nastiest human beings in human yeah. history, right? So right. every fiber of my being, you know, reacted to this woman and said, are you kidding me? How, how stupid and blind and and intellectually bankrupt must you be to cling to the idea that Stalin is somehow a force for good in the world into the mid-1950s when you are living in the United States at a time when we are actively at war with it? I mean, you know, so in one sense, the idea that we went after people like Helen Levitt um, and, and held them up for criticism and opprobrium in the mid fifties makes sense to me on a moral level. But then the way the episode goes is she then describes the effect of that kind of, of the blacklist and how she lost her job and how none of her friends would talk to her anymore and how she was excluded from her world and how she suffered alone. And, and I just thought as much as I am angry with her politics and the stances she took, I also don't believe that she should have been treated that way by mm. people who disagree with her. In other words, I didn't think, I don't think that excluding people from society because they take positions that are um, morally dubious or outrageous or simply unpopular is correct. I think we need to find a way to engage with people whose views we have real problems with without casting them out of society. I think the penalty is, doesn't, is too harsh, that there is something about being cast out um, that, is, that, is the, that is the worst thing you can do to a human being. And the parallels to me are, you know, I've often felt that um, as a society, American society is way too cavalier about the costs of social exclusion. We continue to practice, for example, in the prison system. Um, uh, 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 God, what's the term? Solitary um, confinement. Solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is practiced all the time. It's torture. To yeah. cut someone off from um, all human contact for extended periods of time is torture. 
Um, we are way too, I talk about it in the episode, we, uh, you know, there's a huge amount of data on, um, on school suspensions, um, that they do more harm than good, that the fastest way to push a kid towards criminality, juvenile delinquency, prison, prison, all those kinds of things is to suspend them from school for doing something wrong. There's got to be a better way, in other words, to punish or to rehabilitate or whatever, some kid who does, who screws up in school, then kicking them out of school. There's all of these things that we do in a society to push people to the fringes of society, to ostracize them, that are, I think, wrong and um, dangerous and really, really, really painful to the people that we're punishing. So that's the context in which I view cancel culture. I, I, it's fine to say I disagree with you. It's fine to say you have a set of views that are morally reprehensible. It's fine to stand up to a Stalinist in 1955 and say, why are you a Stalinist? Are you kidding me? Like a Stalinist, the man that's responsible for killing millions of his own people. Like, wake up. Like, it's fine to say that. It's it's like being a Hitlerist. It's like being a Hitlerist. It's, but it is not, it is not fine to cast someone out of society. I just don't, I, part of me really, But what do you mean by that? What do you mean by out of society? Because I think, and you know, my listeners know Mm -hmm. I'm very, very anti-cancel culture. And I think most of the people who listen to the show are too, but. But I, I understand the point of the other side here would be accountability. They would say, and, and I, I'm removing from this discussion people like Harvey Weinstein. That's not cancel culture. Yeah, that's no, that's not you know, a monster no, who got what was coming he's a, to him. He, he's a um, but let's take somebody like Chris Harrison, you know, of The Bachelor, who said something controversial in defense of a candidate. I mean, a contestant on the show who went to a I know, some, some sort of a party that celebrated the Old South. And he defended her saying, uh, you know, was it wrong? When she did this party in 2018, or is it just wrong by 2021 standards, you know, and he's kind of railed on cancel culture. Done. This guy was beloved. He hosted the show from the beginning. He's sweet guy. Chris Harrison isn't a controversial dude, but stripped of his role, publicly humiliated. To me, that's cancel culture where he said one thing that was deemed too controversial for him to. But but he Mm -hmm. what he still has his family, you know, like it's not like a Helen thing where no one can associate with Chris any, you know, so what is. What do you mean cut being cut off Because losing of the job? The other side would say, well, he was racist. And so he had to go. Right. And that's and he suffered an appropriate penalty, which, by the way, he's not yeah. racist. But that's what they say. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I would say that going back to the example of Helen Levitt or a kid who is I had a, uh, a friend whose child was um, suspended from school for some extended period of time for something dumb he did. And he was a kid, you know, he's, you know, uh, in his early teens. And my friend talked about um, how incredibly painful in a way that she, she was, you know, in a way that neither she nor her husband ever anticipated how painful it was for their son to be suspended from school. She said it was hell. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, so forgive me for using these kinds of examples, but I just think they're, they're easier to make sense of than adults doing something wrong. It's I, we're that so somehow in the system, um, the person who made the decision to kick this kid out of school for doing something dumb um, underestimated the pain that would cause the suffering it would cause or didn't care uh, or didn't care. Um, and I think that's where 
to my mind, the, one of the first questions we should ask when we think about how to punish someone for something they've done that's wrong is how much suffering is the punishment going to cause? Now, on this, I will freely admit um, that I am way, 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 way to the, I don't know what direction <laughs> of right. most Americans. You know, I don't even, I, I don't really believe in prison. I'm a, I'm a kind of a prison abolitionist. <laughs> Um, so I'm, you know, I don't Canadian expect, in you. It's the Canadian, but also, no, no, it's also, you know, I am, uh, my family now is, uh, I come from a very religious background and my family are now all part of the, um, the Mennonite church, which is a church that takes the idea of forgiveness very, very seriously. And I wrote about this actually in one of my books about a, mm-hmm. I had a chapter about a Mennonite woman who's daughter was um abducted and killed by a uh uh by a monster um sexually abused and killed by a monster and how even before he was caught the monster was caught she forgave him publicly forgave him that's you said this is what um, this is what gave you your faith back yeah that that's that example has stayed with me very strongly and i i believe that uh, we are called on as human beings um to forgive and forgiveness is meaningless if we only reserve that privilege for the easy cases, right? Mm-hmm. It's only meaningful if we if we use it in 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 instances where it's really really hard to forgive, and that's why I wanted to do that episode on Helen Levitt. It's really really hard for me to forgive someone who was a Stalinist in 1955. Really hard for someone who was as fervently anti-communist as I was as um, as a as a growing up. Um, and so I guess I would ask in these cases, you know, what is the role for forgiveness when people say things that are genuinely, um, horrendous or, or not even horrendous, but, you know, uh, no one disputes in many of, yeah. controversial, in many of these cancel council cases, people are saying things that are truly problematic. Um, mm-hmm. and I would say, can let's ask the for maybe the first question we should ask is before anything happens is is appropriateness forgiveness is forgiveness appropriate here? Um, well, honestly, we- I was looking at it just this morning because the the head of the Olympics, you know, the Olympics are now underway in Tokyo, and the head of the Olympics opening ceremony. Well, I guess you know they're going to have the opening ceremony, but they're they're getting underway. Yeah, got canned because it turned out he made a joke twenty years ago. And um, it it was apparently he said something like, let's play Holocaust in this mm-hmm. comedy routine he did, which sounds like a stupid joke to me. I mean, I like I the guy's now been fired from his, he's he's put together the whole opening ceremony and they're like, we're, we're revamping the entire opening ceremony, you know, to, mm-hmm. to make sure there's no, I guess, hints of the Holocaust. Holocaust. And I was like, come on. That to yeah. me, that seems like a perfect example of a guy who should say, I'm sorry, that was a dumbass joke. 20 years ago, we were, you know, like it was a joke. Move on. You know, not everything has to be a cardinal sin. And and to mm-hmm. me, Malcolm, it boils down to something you put your finger on in talking to strangers, which is um, that we are so confident in our own complexity, but we wrongly believe that others are simple. Strangers yeah. who we don't know at all. Totally simple. I've got him pegged. He's he's I guess an anti-Semite or he's uh, he's a bigot. He's, you know, something, whatever they're saying about this guy or Chris Harrison or whomever. And mm-hmm. this has been one of my beefs, too, that I always quote my therapist. People are complicated. They're complicated. They are. We've forgotten that. 
we have forgotten yeah. all about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wonder whether there is, I've thought about this, that we what we need is, to going back to this idea of forgiveness, um, there, there has to be um, uh, um, social mechanisms that allow us to, that allow for apologies to be given, for forgiveness to be granted, for rehabilitation to be undergone and um, seen as kind of credible. I mean, I'm remembering years ago, my mom told me about, my mom's a therapist, and she um, she told me about a case involving um, someone in the Mennonite community. This is the old order Mennonite community. So this is, I grew up in this part of Ontario with a lot of uh, traditional Mennonites, people, you know, who don't, who, who drive horse and buggy like the Amish and don't participate wow. in the 20th century. And and she was working on a case with someone who had committed a crime. And she talked to me about how um, the community chose to deal with this um, man's um, transgression. And they had a ceremony. And they all gathered in the church and the man stood up and he was required to publicly confess to his sin and to apologize in view of the entire congregation um, towards the person to whom he had, um, uh, the person he had wronged. And it, there's much more to it than that. It was embedded in a, uh, an entire kind of um, religious ceremony that talked about biblical ideas of forgiveness and what Jesus teaches us about um, the importance of forgiveness and all kinds of things. But, it, I, you know, I'm not saying that that's obviously not appropriate for the secular world that we're living in. But it was interesting to me. I remember she told me, I was a kid at the time she told me this. I've always remembered that because it was an example of a community that had thought seriously about what do we do when someone says something or does something that's deeply wrong, right? Right. How what does the justice system look like outside yeah. of the courts, right? The exactly. moral sort of societal exactly. justice system. And ours right now is so upended and and cruel. It's, I mean, it's just it's really... A, yeah, it's impossible. The word I would use, I agree. All it, it is also impoverished. It's like there must be more than one way to deal with this. And and we have to get away from the idea that right now we have this notion that if you settle for anything less than um, the maximum response to a transgression, you are some, somehow condoning the, trans the transgression. That's where I have an issue. I can be every bit as outraged as anyone else by what someone has said or done, but that doesn't mean that I think they should receive the maximum penalty. Up next, we're also sure of our own judgment, especially when we use it against other people. Why the lesson of Harry Markopoulos should give us some pause. And then we're going to get into Little Mermaid. Um, but before we get to that, I want to bring you a feature we have here on the MK Show called You Can't Say That. Yes, it's time for another edition of one of our favorite features. You can't say that or think that or do that or be that. Oh, wait, this is America. Today, we're talking about UFC, Megan Fox, and Donald Trump, and the fact that apparently now you can get canceled for making a true statement. But you already knew that, didn't you? The actress Megan Fox was a guest on Jimmy Kimmel Live last week when she talked about attending the big Conor McGregor UFC fight in Vegas the weekend before. Among the stars in the crowd that night, Justin Bieber, Addison Rae, and former President Donald Trump. Fox relayed this story 
Take a listen to how she told it. I was in a row with Bieber and mm-hmm. Trump was also in my row. Oh! And yeah. And I've never seen Secret Service in person before. So we had like 30 Secret Service with him. And he was a legend. That arena like was very supportive of, of Trump when he came in. A legend? <gasps> how dare she? Well, you won't be surprised to learn that Twitter was outraged with calls for her to renounce her statement. How pathetic is Twitter. Fox, to her credit, stood her ground and fired back, quote, I do not align myself with any political party or individual politicians. Uh, She wrote on Instagram saying her comment about Trump being a legend was an observable fact, not my opinion. Well, only some observable facts are allowed to be said these days. Quote, really loving this uneducated, medieval, pitchfork-carrying, burn-a-witch-at-the-stake mentality, she wrote. Has she been on Twitter? (laughs) <laughs> kind of it's bread and butter. Uh, well, now she knows. Next time you make an observation about something you witnessed in a way that reflects a Republican politician in a positive light, well, you better pause because you can't say that. Oh, wait, this is America. And back to Malcolm Gladwell. Next. You know what's happening in today's day and age. It's not even always genuine outrage or it's it's manufactured or it is outrage, but it's total, it, it's an overreaction, right? Let's like sort of, we're so mm-hmm. tribal that if somebody who's not in your tribe commits quote, a sin, you just want the person's head on a stake. It's not really about justice. It's about a war and, you know, taking down as many people on the other side as possible. And that's how we're looking at one another. But what, what strikes me is, you know, back to sort of some of what you've written, the hubris that we have in thinking we can assess another's character without knowing more, without digging, without allowing mm-hmm. for complexity. You're in, in in talking to strangers, you make a very compelling case that, you know, you look at our history when it comes to assessing public figures and how bad we are at it. And you would think yeah. we would have emerged a little humbled when it comes to our abilities. And to the contrary, I think we're more emboldened than ever unjustifiably. And the, and I want you to talk, if you don't mind, a little bit about Harry Markopoulos and Bernie, because I love this case. I've talked about Harry Markopoulos many times. He's like, where's the crappy green suit? It's not, it's not a nice suit. His hair is always messed up. His tie is always crooked when you see the old B-roll of him testifying before the SEC or what have you. Mm-hmm. And no one is listening to Harry. He just doesn't look the part. Bernie Madoff, on the other hand, looked the part of the distinguished Wall Street guy. He had run the SEC. It's like, whoever heard of Harry? Nobody. Mm-hmm. And this is such a great lesson. And you may not know all you think you know in assessing other people. Harry Markopoulos and the men like him and women, they may, they may have the real answers and you may know nothing. So I'll, I'll give you the floor. Yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting case to me about, um, I devoted a chapter of uh, Talking to Strangers to the Madoff case. And Markopoulos, as you say, was a forensic accountant who is the guy who tries to blow the whistle on on Bernie Madoff, going way, way back. He fingers him appropriately as uh, running a Ponzi scheme years before Madoff turned himself into the authorities. And Madoff, um, Markopoulos, repeatedly tries to um, convince the SEC and others that Madoff is a crook and nobody will listen to him. Um, In part because, as you say, Markopoulos, um, the very thing that makes him very good at Mm -hmm. sniffing out villains um, makes him 
um, uh, not very good at convincing others of his findings. He's he's he he's not uh, a uh, he's not smooth. He's not um, uh, compelling. He comes across as a bit of a nut. When he was Attorney General of New York, uh, Markopoulos tries to give um, Elliot Spitzer a file on Madoff with all of his findings, and instead of like just having a meeting with Spitzer, he like puts on a disguise and like wraps oh his findings in like three different envelopes and sidles Harry. up to Spitzer's aid. You know, it's like he just he, he like comes across as a nut, and of course people don't listen to him. Um, but at every you know. When you look at that case, what you find is that at every turn, people are getting um, everyone else wrong, right? We're getting Madoff wrong. Uh, Markopoulos is misunderstanding the people he needs to to convince. I mean, it's just like, and it's just this humbling reminder of the fact that our impressions of our first impressions of people, um, not just first impressions, the the way in which we make sense of strangers is just not very good. And mm-hmm. when you realize that, it ought to powerfully, I think, um, discipline your conclusions about others. You got to mm-hmm. keep in mind you know, when you reach a conclusion about someone that you're engaged in uh, an exercise at which human beings are not very good, right? right. And <clears throat> the, the, to bring it back once again to my Helen Levitt show, um, the thing that was so interesting about the Helen Levitt case was she gives this six-hour, seven-hour interview. Um, and in the first hour, you learned that she was a communist. In the second hour, you learned that she defended Stalin even in the 1950s. So you hate her in the second hour, and you think she's a moral monster. And then she starts to talk about her life, and you start to have sympathy with her because you, about her because you learn how much she suffered. And then, in like hour six, you learn about all the other things she did over the course of her career and how the, how she was someone with an enormous heart who did all kinds of other things for other people and who worked for all kinds of causes that we do believe in and who helped people who needed help. And, I, and, and you understand that she was a complicated, nuanced, multifaceted person. And if all you do is listen to the first hour of that seven hour interview, you see a piece of her, but not the whole Helen Levitt. And you're inclined to be far more judgmental of her than if you take the time to go through all seven hours. Mm-hmm. And that is a beautiful illustration of what I'm talking about, is that maybe as we consider these cases of people, one another question we should ask ourselves is when we consider these cases of people who do do things that are genuinely harmful, um, hurtful, immoral, or whatever, we need to ask ourselves, are we seeing the whole person at least you know, let us you take know, Malcolm, the time. I'm picturing my, more like my war analogy because the tribes consider themselves at war, Democrats, mm-hmm. Republicans, woke, non-woke, whatever, however you want to divide them. And th- that's like to me saying to a soldier, before you take a shot at that guy on the other side who's got the gun on you, right? This is how they would see it. You yeah. should know a little bit about his childhood. You know, what brought mm-hmm. him here? Why is he trying? Right. Whereas like soldiers in a war say, I'm just pulling the trigger. It's me or him. We're fighting to the death. You know, we're fighting for the most, the the deepest principles one can fight for. And there's Mm -hmm. no interest in understanding one's, quote, adversary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, um, I don't know. It's just, it's just a call for, I wish on both sides, um, 
ideological sides, there was more humility when it comes to these yeah. kinds of situations. I mean, just well, I, what I love about your book is that you get into how you know, you may have the perfect pedigree, academic or what have you, quote unquote, perfect. It doesn't make you any better at this game. And, you know, there's a reason all mm -hmm. these well-heeled people suspected made off a little kind of like went halfway on their investments or withdrew some, but not all because he looked the part and he was the former head of the SEC and everybody else was investing with him. And somebody like Harry saw it. And you get into Harry's dad owned an Arthur Treacher's. Are they still around? Yes. Remember Arthur Treacher's? I, I don't know. The fish I don't know. I was and he saw there. grift. He saw people stealing. Yeah. And so he had a different background that really worked for him. It inured to his benefit. It let him see things mm -hmm. that the rest of us either didn't see or chose not to understand. It's hard for everybody to live like that. You know, you, you make the point we'd be in a difficult society if we were all as suspicious as Harry is. Or you need you need Harry's of the world, and I do think that the main point to me of that whole discussion, whether it was on Amanda Knox or the spy Anna, who you know they suspected but they never turned her in, um, have humility in assessing somebody else's character. You never know, and and yeah. you you really should have humility in your own judgments because you're not perfect either. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I think. Um, so that leads me to. The Guardian and the qu the question you answered in April of 2021, if you could bring something extinct back to life, what would mm. you choose? And your answer, I love the Cold War, the Cold War, <laughs> a, <laughs> a permanent stable crisis is much more appealing to me now than a permanent, completely unpredictable one. <laughs> yeah, that was, that, that, I was having a little bit of fun with that one. Uh, you know, I mean... One, one enemy, you know, one, <laughs> it's kind of nice to think like in the Cold War, we had a nice stretch where we only had, we really just worried about like, you know, one half of the world, one enemy, one, we knew what the danger was, nuclear weapon. I mean, it was, there was something kind of comforting. I was, <laughs> I, I will say that as I, when I was answering the question, I, I was deep into, um, uh, uh, I was working on my book, The Bomber Mafia, which came out a couple months ago, and um, which is all about the Second World War. And so I was in the world of clearly defined conflicts. And the thing that's so wonderful in thinking and reading about the Second World War is its clarity, right? Like, yeah, you really definitely. couldn't. Yeah, you really couldn't say, I don't know whether we should be fighting this Hitler guy. No, it, it was, uh, we were all behind that. Like, and it's just yeah. like thinking back to a moment when absolutely everyone, except complete nut jobs, um, in 1942 in the United States, or 43, there's no, we're not having arguments about the, uh, the moral correctness of this fight, nor were they having those arguments in London in during the Blitz yeah. or... And just like I had a kind of nostalgic moment for the idea that we could all be united around a common cause. And, I relate. I get um, it. I, I felt what you felt when you said it, like just yeah. and not divided inside. You know, it's it's easier. I, I'm thinking now about um, Miracle on Ice and the story about how um, Herb what's his last name? Brooks. Herb uh, Brooks. Brooks. Thank you. Herb Brooks brought yeah. that team together. The American yeah. team. Sorry to defeat the Canadians. To defeat the Russians. Oh, yeah, yes. Never mind. It was in Canada. So you're on my team. Um, yeah, to <laughs> defeat the Russians. Thank you. 
and how he made himself the common enemy, right? They, the, the guys yeah. were all divided. They came from different regions. They came from different schools. And so he needed to give them a common enemy so they could bond amongst each other. And that's sort of what you're saying. Like we were, we've well, been we in should, places post 9-11, World War II, Cold War, where we as Americans were together. And there was a common enemy do, outside. I say this with the Olympics coming up. You know, every now and again, whenever we, there's this moment where we actually do have a common cause, typically the Olympics is a good example. And then there's always a little, some little pushback, like Americans are too raw, raw about like cheering for their side in the Olympics. I was like, actually, no, I think we need more of that. <laughs> can we have, can we like, Bill Simmons, my friend Bill Simmons, who you know the sports who does yeah. the ringer, he has this yeah. great idea for the for hockey, which is that National Hockey League should be divided into two conferences: the Canadian Conference and the American Conference. And every single year, the best Canadian team should play the best American team for the Stanley Cup. And mm-hmm. the reason I love that idea is we desperately need more examples, opportunities where the entire country can cheer for one thing, right? This, yes. is a, this is a muscle that you have to exercise. And we need to exercise a lot more. I love the women's soccer for the same reason. Like, sadly, they lost the other day. But, yeah, you know, not looking when so they, good. Those, are, there, those were moments when we could all get behind. Just or like, what, about, just... what about like Mary Lou Retton? Um, we've had such great moments oh, yeah. in individual gymnastics, you know, where... Yeah. Oh, what's the name of the young gal? She stuck the landing, so, even though she got her Carrie Strug. Carrie oh, Strug got hurt, remember? And she hurt the and she yeah. stuck the landing. It was like, yay. Anyway, there ha- that's that's what's fun about the Olympics. Let's hope they go off because every day yeah. there's another COVID threat, this, that, or the other thing. All right. Now I've got to, I, I, I don't want to um, miss because we got a few minutes left, like 20 minutes, but we got to talk about the Little Mermaid as a mother and of I've three children. Waiting. I have yeah, been waiting patiently now. <laughs> <laughs> Not only have you done an in-depth like, study on this, but three episodes, three episodes on three The Little episodes. Mermaid. Now, three why episodes. is this? Why is this so important to Malcolm oh, Gladwell? Well, so many reasons, Megan. I can't. But wait, do people call you MK? Should I be calling you MK? You're allowed to call me MK. My staff calls me MK. People who know me well call me MK. Yes, kind you're like, in. I, Please kind call of me like MK. MK. Kind of like yeah, MK. go for it. I like it all too. Right. So um, first of all, I'm going to say something that... Um, it's going to blow your mind um, and right. also the minds of all of your listeners. I had never watched a Disney animated movie until March of 2021. Never. The whole what? thing passed me by. No idea. <laughs> I, first of all, didn't have a t- TV growing up. Um, so no, no example of ever like, and then, you know, I don't know, didn't, have kids so didn't have like an example that is what lures you in that, that, ma- that makes it more understandable yeah. so then I, I i read i read this essay written by this total totally brilliant woman um who's a, a law professor at uh um at at northwestern in which she talks about um, her name is Laura Beth Nielsen. And by the way, if you ever want to have a fantastic guest on your show, just call up Laura Beth Nielsen. She's oh. the most hilarious, brilliant. And in the first episode, well, we will. it's yes, we're of the of my Little Mermaid trilogy. It's really the Laura Beth Nielsen show. And she just she talks about how she was she had two young boys and she watched Little Mermaid and she's a lawyer, a law professor. She's like, wait a minute. What's going on here? Like the <laughs> notions of the law that are being represented in the story are all crazy. Like 
And this is kind of a, a hilarious example, which I, I, I went back, I talked to her, then I went back and I watched it and I was like, oh my God, she's so right. This is nuts. There's so many problems with it. But I'll start with Laura Beth Nielsen's critique. She points out, among other things, she's got a whole series of critiques, but uh, the notion of the whole Disney, Disney's Little Mermaid, the crucial plot point is that Ariel signs a contract with Ursula in which she gives up her voice in return for a shot at being a human, right? Because she wants to fall in love with, um, with uh, Prince Eric. Uh, and the contract is in cannot be broken, right? If she fails to get Prince Eric to fall in love with her, then she has to permanently give up her voice and become basically a slave in Ursula's garden. And once she's signed, then there's no way for this contract to be revoked. Even King Triton, with all of his powers, cannot revoke this contract. And the only way the contract can be um, in, uh, in, uh, uh, can be invalidated is that Ursula has to be murdered by Prince Eric at the end of the movie. And as Laura Beth Nielsen pointed out, that's not how contracts work. <laughs> the whole point of contracts is that if they are, they do not enshrine justice. If they are immoral, the law has an elaborate mechanism for revisiting the contract. This is a contract signed with a minor involving the sale of a body part. It absolutely can be invalidated. In fact, there's, there's nothing the law does better than re-examine. That's why we have people who study contract law. That's why we have law firms. We know this. And she's like sitting, so you imagine, there's Laura Beth Nielsen, this brilliant legal mind, sitting with her two like six-year-old boys, whatever. I don't know how old they were. She's watching Little Mermaid and she's just losing her mind. She's like, are you kidding me? Why are you teaching my six-year-old? something, a fact about the law, <laughs> fundamentally false. And also more on a more serious level, what she's saying is what you're teaching my child is that the law does not embody justice. Rather, the law is a separate arbitrary instrument that evil people use to further their evil ends. She's like, <laughs> no, it's not. The whole point of the law, you know, in a democracy like the United States is it embodies justice. It's the mechanism, the beautiful mechanism we have created to ensure just outcomes in the world, right? Look how excited you are. It, <laughs> and the fact, I am so excited about this. And the fact that it works, and it works, by the way, for all the facts that, you know, this is a lawyer. We grumble about legal mechanisms all the time, but I, it, they work really well in this country, you know? <laughs> they do. Really well. Not perfectly. No, I read. Not so you said the, the Little Mermaid is a vigilante picture. It's an animated and Dirty Harry. It's, it's, <laughs> it's worse than that. Think about it. So we have this problem created by the fact that Ariel signs a contract which cannot be broken, which falls. Mm -hmm. And the only way they can break it is that she engages her boyfriend, Prince Eric, in an act of extra legal execution. He murders Ursula at the end of the movie in order to get her out of the contract. What kind of message is that sending? That's nuts. This is, you, this is a movie for children in which we sanction an extra legal execution as a way of resolving a legal problem. <laughs> do you understand why wait, you, but you can, this is? Why pick on The Little Mermaid? There's so many movies you could do this to, okay. right? It's like in, okay. in uh, what is it, Tangled? Or is it Tangled? They keep they keep her up in a tower. The, the evil mother yeah. keeps her up in a tower. It's imprisonment. Yeah. And uh, and you know that in Snow White, that the evil queen 
you know, she can't actually make herself into an old lady with the poison apple, right? Like that doesn't, I can't act, the mirror doesn't act. Like we're not reality based in any. That's why they call them fairy tales. Hold on. First of all, first of all, you suggest that I'm done. Who says I'm done? Look at him. Look at him. Right? Look at him. Sec- secondly, <laughs> secondly, secondly, aren't, are you, you should be ashamed. You're a lawyer. <laughs> you know as much as Mary, as, as, as Laura Beth Nielsen. You sat and watched The Little Mermaid with your children, did you not? I did. I confess. And did you, trained in the law, did you turn to your children and say, no, wait a minute, guys, this is not the way the law works. No, because we knew it was fake. (laughs) No, because in this instance, and only in this instance, I'm going to question your parenting skills. You you have a responsibility to say to your kids, this is not the way the law works. And because you failed at that task, I realized (laughs) I had to do a podcast episode about it. In order to get now I've got to let them listen to it. You can do Absolutely. the cleanup in aisle seven that I created. <laughs> I will say how? when I read them some fairy tales, I'll say, you know, because they constantly focus on the looks of the little girls or the Cinderella in every single. So I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with complimenting a woman's looks, but I'll always add, like, I'll say, and she was incredibly smart. She was strong and happened to be beautiful. Right. Like, I'll throw in a few adjectives. Well, they'll come over and look and say, huh? Um, but I understand wait, I mean, have, all the messaging wait. in these fairy tales is, is it is deeply Nuts. problematic. If, yeah. Wait, do you have. Do you have girls or boys? What do you have? Both? What do you have? I have two boys and a girl. Oh, I see. Now I've got um, it all. You've got it all. Now your is your little is your girl youngest or older? Where is she in the? She's in the middle. So they're right now they're eleven, ten, and um, my little guy turns eight on Friday. So eleven, ten, and eight, and she's think, the ten-year-old. MK, I think the damage has been done. I think it's. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's too late. It's too late. I think your your failure. To exercise appropriate parenting when it came to these fairy tales has given your kids a distorted version of what the law is good at. By the way, God only not, knows where this is going to go. Not, not just the law. So that's just episode one. Then we <laughs> dig into it further in episode two. And you know, we're, well, here's, what we're here's what we're interested in. Well, uh, here's what we're interested in, in episode no, two. Tell me. Go. <laughs> so I got Britt Marling, who's this brilliant screenwriter and uh, actor in Hollywood, who's a friend of mine, to rewrite The Little Mermaid, to create an ending that actually works. And her big point, which is super interesting, is the point of the, the Little Mermaid story is about a young woman who must give up her voice in order to be accepted by society and get what she wants, which is a beautiful and powerful and really important message um, that I think women everywhere can yeah. appreciate and understand, right? You are that. required. Yeah. I mean, think, right? You yes. know this. And yeah. so it's sort of back said, to our original point. When you, and when exactly. you speak, you better be saying all the right things. Exactly. Um, so it begins with this beautiful idea. And then Disney drops the ball, right? Because the, how does, the movie is about how does she get her voice back? And in the Disney's Little Mermaid, the way this girl who tragically is required to give up her voice in order to achieve what she wants in the world... The way she gets her voice back is that a guy gets it back for her. Yeah, right. Always not, in every Disney film. Now, not, in modern come, day, they're come, doing less come of come it, on, but yeah, the classics on. for sure. Wait, do I do I need to call up your daughter and just say to her, "Look, <laughs> you weren't told the truth about the Little Mermaid." I, I'm gonna. Well, let you me. Have to make, let Let me take you down a road right there because I know you said I laughed when I saw this. I'm like, okay, Malcolm definitely doesn't watch my show, listen to our show because you said when when Meghan Markle in the Oprah interview said, "Oh, that's what happened to me." That's, and you said, "Do we did we roll our eyes?" No, we said, "Oh my God, she's so right." And I laughed because that is definitely not what I said. I was like, "Oh, please give me a break." 
Here's why. Because she was empowered. Meghan Markle knew what she was getting herself into. Nobody thinks well, joining the royal family will be an opportunity to express all of your free speech rights. And my then six-year-old daughter, because I was going <laughs> yeah. off to cover the royal wedding, said, and I played the tape when Piers Morgan came on, said, why would anyone want a royal marry into the royal family? She she, she made said, the point. You, it's like you you can't eat with your right hand. You have to eat with your left. They make yeah. you, and someone else makes your choices. I was like, yes. So I did my job, Malcolm. She knew. She knew before Meghan Markle knew. She should have <laughs> consulted. But no, I'm actually more impressed by your daughter at this point than you. She's the <laughs> That's one. actually dead on. <laughs> she, she's the one who pinpoints. She's absolutely right. Why the mm. only reason if to join the royal family is if you want to play dress up for the rest of your life. And that's like, right. Ribbons. 100%. Like that's, that's right. What it's about. That's, that's why the job. other girls didn't want to marry Harry. Like the uh, Cressida. That's, she's, all, she's all on the record saying like, I didn't want to live like that. And who could blame her? I'll tell you one other story. Um, my one friend is a lawyer. She's a woman and she's a female lawyer in New York and she's kick-ass. And they went to Disney with her daughter and her son and her daughter was around eight. And the Cinderella fairy godmother came over and said to the daughter, um, and who is your fairy godmother? And the little girl said, well, I, I don't have one. And the fairy godmother said, well, who makes all your wishes come true? And the little the little girl looked up to her up at her and my friend, the mom, leaned in and said, mm. Where we come from, we make our own wishes come true. <laughs> <laughs> the fairy godmother Disney's like, oh good lord. Dist. Dist. <laughs> what have you brought me? <laughs> I love it. It's well, I love fun. that you're doing important work like this because there is a problem with those Disney fairy tales, although I yes. still read them and tell them and make small modifications. I don't know. I feel like I turned out okay, notwithstanding, but I could be wrong. They could actually be the source of all of my, the internet tells me I have internalized misogyny. This is why, Malcolm, we've gotten to the bottom of it. <laughs> don't leave me now. we got more coming up in 60 seconds. I want to end with something practical since I do have three okay. children and they will be moving up the ranks. They're all, you know, middle school mm -hmm. and elementary school, but someday they're going to be going to high school and applying to colleges. And I want, I want you to explain why the last resource we should use in choosing a school is U S news and world reports ranks of quote top colleges. Cause that's another thing you've been focused on in the way only you can with your forensic diagnosis of how these things work mm -hmm. and whether we should rely on them or not. And you've been taking our look at that and, and have, landed on not. Yeah, we did uh, two episodes of Revisions History on what's wrong with the U.S. news rankings. And <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm going to get even as much worked up about this as I, as I, I did it. about I The Little it. Mermaid. Um, so many problems. Basically, though, they, so they use an algorithm to determine how to rank a college, which is itself um, an audacious act that you could come up with an equation. And I give the example in the episode of, you know, there are three schools that are ranked um, roughly equally in the U.S. news rankings. Um, Yeshiva University in New York City, uh, Gonzaga University and in, in Washington, and uh, uh, Brigham Young in Utah. So uh, a Jewish school, a Mormon school, and a Jesuit school. And a school where uh, sports is everything, uh, mm -hmm. A school where sports is nothing. A school where people uh, do drink lots of beer. A school where people don't drink <laughs> beer at all. A school, I could go on. Like, you couldn't imagine more, three more different schools 
in America than Yeshiva, Gonzaga, and Brigham Young. And U.S. News purports to tell you that those three schools are roughly equal. How is that, how is that even possible? That's nuts. If, if I'm someone, if I'm someone who, who's Catholic and, you know, living in Long Island and really wants to live in the Northeast or Northwest, Gonzaga is not equal to Brigham Young, is it? Right. <laughs> no, if I'm someone who wants to go to a small urban school and study Talmud, how is that? How how can you say that 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 yeshiva is equal to Gonzaga, right? I mean, just that. So the whole enterprise is flawed. But the thing I dig into is the most important thing they uh, use to generate the ranking is what they call the reputation score, and that's that is generated by asking every college president in the country to rank every other school on a scale of one to five. And the question I asked was, if you are uh, so you're given, if you're a college president, a list of hundreds of schools, and you give each one of them a grade. And my question was, this is the most important thing in their entire algorithm. How does a college president possibly grade every other school in the country? On what basis do they make that judgment? How right. do they even know? Like, right. if you're the president of Gonzaga, how do you know what grade to give Yeshiva? Do you go to Yeshiva? Did you right. attend it? Do you go and ask people? So, I mean... You, this is just the beginning. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. But the whole point is, it's crazy. That's that idea. And so then I actually had a, I got a, this hilarious woman named Laura Robb, who's a, a senior at Reed College. And I got her to do a little statistical exercise where she simply said, can we break down and see what factors correlate the most with these reputation scores that US News thinks are so important? And it turns out, turns out you can, figure out a school's reputation just by looking at how high its tuition is, how much money mm. it has in the bank, and what percentage of its undergraduate population is white. That's all you need to know. Wah, you know wah. those three facts. So like, Ugh. that's not, you, you know, no college student in the, or no, no, no high school student looking to go to college in this country should be at all basing their decision about where to go to college. What should uh, they be basing the it on? What if, what if parents who are going through this right now, what's the alternate, mm -hmm. right? Because it's super competitive. They've all read outliers and their kids have been getting their 10,000 hours of soccer and lacrosse and they are ready. No, that's not me. your fault. Don't blame, that's don't not your, blame it's me. It's not, not your fault, but it is a thing. Now yeah. everybody's having babies in January because of your book pointed okay. out the Canadian, don't, don't, yeah, don't the Canadian stop. hockey teams, the, the ones born in January <laughs> do better than the ones born in late December yeah. because of the age difference. All that stuff has manifested. I live it. I see it. I'm like, oh damn, Malcolm. Um, <laughs> although I didn't, I didn't, I had babies in all the wrong times of the year. So it's okay. I don't blame yeah. me. Um, so yeah. What should they consult? Like, what should they be doing? Well, they should ask the question, uh, where will I be happiest and where will I be most engaged? I mean, the simple truth about, mm, you know, the overwhelming majority of American colleges is that they're all really good. If a student, if the student is engaged, you know, if you take advantage of the opportunities that college offers, if you get out of your dorm room, if you have interesting conversations with people, if you meet up with your professors, if you do the reading you're supposed to be doing, if you go to the, you know, the play that's being put on, if you do all those kinds of things, you'll get a great education. The problem isn't the people get bad educations, not because they go to quote unquote bad schools, but because they go to schools and they don't take advantage of the opportunities that are offered by those schools, mm -hmm. right? There's, a, so there's, there's 200. And by the way, the 
the the people who teach the professors at these schools, they're all they all have great educations. They all get PhDs from the same places. They're all passionate. Not all, but you know, it's it's like you don't go into that. You don't want to be a professor unless you like students and want to teach them. I mean, it's not like there's a shortage of good teachers out there, but you know, the last thing you should be using to make your decision is how nice the school looks. This, or, you know, I, I went earlier in revisionist history a couple of seasons ago, I did this whole thing about um, Bowdoin College and how they were boasting about how good the food was in their dining hall. That's not a reason to go to college, to pick a college, <laughs> right. right? Especially given That's the tuition nuts. these days. Yeah, especially. And you know, you what, I, honestly, paying. I've... I've lived this myself. I went to Syracuse undergrad, but I went to Albany Law School, which is, you know, to be mm-hmm. charitable, it's at best a third tier law school. And uh, it worked out fine. I, I threw myself into it. I loved every moment. I joined everything. I did moot court and I did law review and I studied, studied, studied. My brain was fired up. I loved it. I enjoyed it. And I yeah. got into one of the best law firms in the country. And, and then I transferred into literally one of the top 10 law firms in the country. It works out fine. People are so obsessed with pedigree. And I... I know you've made the point, like we're ruining our kids' high school years, this time of life that should be wonderful for them. Coming of age, first loves, socialization at its peak when you really need your friends and social clubs. And it's my high school time, like that period in that way was wonderful. My parents put zero pressure on me. I didn't didn't even understand Mm -hmm. that the SAT was coming. And, um, I just think people need to remember, right? It's you don't have to get junior into the quote perfect school on paper. You have to worry about juniors, happiness, well being, well roundedness. And we need to remind students, kids, that it's not about the institution; it's about you, right? It's about your own enthusiasm, motivation, interest level. And this is a, this is a, you know, these are fundamentally when you go off to, to college. Your college experience is a test of your own character. That's what it is. And, you know, people will do everything in their power to duck that realization. They'll want to say, no, 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 everything will be fine if I just go to X, where, no, no, no. It's about you. What do you do when you're, and the number of people who squander what should be, a, you know, the one of the most important four-year stretches of your life. They squander it because they're indifferent or they're unmotivated or they smoke a lot of pot and play a lot of video games. Why would you go to, why would you go all the way off to college and spend all of that money and be surrounded by all of that wonder and learning and, and be sitting in your dorm room smoking pot? Like, yeah. And totally burnt out from a high school that was jam full of stuff you didn't really want to be doing. All right. I'll leave it with this. Um, the other thing you said to the Guardian in April of 2021, the trait I most deplore in others is, and your answer was, people who deny the extent of their privilege. I love that because you're very anti-elitism, and mm-hmm. I can relate to you on that. And you you do a thing in one of your books on Jeb Bush saying, like, I'm self-made. Well, mm. <laughs> Hello. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> um, and so I just wanted to say, it. I've never met you before. We've never talked, but it. It has been my privilege to sit here getting to know you and hear your take on everything, everything. What a broad conversation. I've enjoyed this too, MK. Now I'm calling you MK. I'll see you soon, MG. I hope I (laughs) will. I I hope I see you at Aussie. And uh, if not before, it's been great. Good. Thank you. 
Well, that was a fun time. I, I really enjoyed that interview. I hope you did too. If you did, go ahead and subscribe to the show right now and give us a download and a review and do it now because you're not going to want to miss Monday's episode. Ben Shapiro is back with us, one of my favorite people, and uh, can't wait to talk to him about everything. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.